listening to the Soil Talk podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. All right, so today on Soil Talk, we have a special guest, and that guest is my ex-co-host, Keith Byerly, who's now with the Soil Health Partnership. Keith, tell us a little bit about what you do for the Soil Health Partnership. So the Soil Health Partnership is a nonprofit arm of the National Corn Growers Association that works in the field of sustainability. So what we are doing out there in the country is working directly with growers on their farms to do trial research, to work towards better methods of soil health that work on wide scale adoption. So we're kind of there to fill that gap in between academia and commercial with the concepts of replicated data and the idea that the power that replicated data gives us across 16 or 17 states throughout the Corn Belt and and the states that touch the Corn Belt, but not all the way with exactly the same stringent requirements that academia has. So what we're mainly focusing on are those soil health ideas like the conversion to more limited tillage systems, the addition of cover crops into rotation systems, nutrient management, advancements, cover crop grazings, those things that are the buzz right now in the world of soil health, but don't necessarily have the legs underneath them to stand entirely on their own without more adoption and more research. Do you assist quite a few growers with on-farm research on their own farm then? Yep. So my the, the team I'm part of, the field manager team at the Soil Health Partnership, there are nine of us that work directly with about 200 growers across the Midwest. Very good. So Keith, when we talk about soil health, and you and I off and on have had multiple discussions about soil health, how do you define soil health? I think the really easy way to think about soil health is the ability to make the soil prosperous today while still building it up for future generations. I mean, you can add a whole lot of fancy words and regenerative and all of that stuff into it. But in a nutshell, we've got to be profitable today with what we're doing to get better and make it better so that children and grandchildren have the opportunity to be on this land as well. You can tell you've got a background in ag retail because just bringing profitability in so early in the soil health conversation (laughs) is refreshing to me. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you can't get it done with the resources you have, you're probably not going to do it. When I think about soil health and uh, farming, and this is kind of coming from the farming operations that I'm involved in, you know, a little more intimately, our own family farms, I think, first of all, absolutely number one in southwest Iowa with our rolling hills and, you know, 40 inches of rainfall, I think no-till. Absolutely number one, starting the soil health conversation, no tillage or very limited tillage. Your thoughts on tillage and soil health? The tillage piece of soil health, I think, you're, it pains me to say it, but exactly right. Oh, my gosh. We, we better agreed. double record that. What was that again, Keith? I, I don't remember what I just said, <laughs> but we'll move on from there. Um, the, the idea of removing that disturbance from the soil, one, to increase the, the positive things going on in the soil, the respiration, the microbe activity, the earthworms, the structure, the fragmentation, all of that stuff, first and foremost, is, is a huge piece on the, the regenerative side or, or that side of things. But first and foremost, we know that we can't keep sending topsoil 
away from our farms. And anybody that thinks that topsoil removal isn't an issue in their neighborhood or in their operations or whatever doesn't have to do a whole lot of investigative work in, in their backyards to figure out what's going on. I can think of several country cemeteries that I drive by on a pretty regular basis where if you leave the road and you go around to the back side of the, the cemetery, the side that's facing the field, there's a three to a five foot drop from the level of that cemetery in the mid to late 1800s to the early 2000s. And that didn't all just magically disappear. It, it happened because of the way that we have evolved. And, and what we do today, I think, in almost every instance is better than what we did 50 and 60 years ago. But that's the major piece because that's the piece that's garnering the attention of the regulatory world. If we have regulations put on us that we have to apply fertilizers different, if we have regulations put on us that we have to have uh, living covers and snow fences and all of these different things applied to it, it's because of the topsoil that's blowing away and going into the gulf and those pieces of it. So first and foremost, you're never going to stop that with just living covers and things like that. It takes the, the, the elimination of breaking up the surface of that soil and reducing its ability to go down the stream and, and adding the, the residue to it to break up the impact of the wind and the rain. Right. You know, the NRCS has been very successful, especially in areas where it is the rolling hills, where you've got you know slopes that you need to consider, where they've got higher rainfall amounts, at converting farmers over to either minimum till or no till. You know that you hardly see a plow anymore, and for the most part, you don't see a lot of disking. You see more you know one pass operations, or you see more frankly nothing. You know a lot more. There's a lot of no till out there. Now, <clears throat> when I get into places like Central Nebraska, where soils are fairly flat. Um, guys are under a pivot, you know, and, and maybe it was furrow irrigation one time, which really tells you that field's pretty flat. They don't see the need as much to go to no-till. I mean, it's obvious to see the need for no-till when you've got a big gully going down the, your side hill. But when you don't see that, it's harder to convince them. And, and what are your thoughts on, you know, tillage versus no-till on that flat ground? Well, not to open up a can of worms, but... Literally. Something is changing with the way that our climate interacts with our farms. Sure. Rainfall intensities are different today than what we grew accustomed to from the 80s to 2005, 2010, somewhere in there. We didn't get nearly as many of the five-inch thunderstorms at a time when we got rainfall events happening in that, in that time frame back then. Today... It seems like everybody gets one of those a year, really, for the most part anymore, especially when we talk about from Des Moines to the West, for instance. So from that standpoint, just thinking about the infiltration, and there's a, there's a whole other subject that we could easily go get tied down in, but the infiltration of water into our soils based on the tillage system and and those mechanics that go beyond that is hugely important to what we've got to look at out here. When we fracture that soil up with any sort of, I don't care if it's turbo till, you know, vertical tillage, low impact, high speed tillage, or chisel plows, or 
ripping or whatever it is between that, we destroy the ability for a period of time to have water infiltration go into it. And we've kind of glossed over that because we have the ability to supplement that with center pivots and and subsurface irrigation and all the different types of irrigation that we have in this neck of the woods. But as we become more and more focused on eliminating our energy costs that go with that, as we become more and more focused on maintaining our, our water levels, our groundwater levels and groundwater quality and things like that, we we're trying to drive down those irrigation rates. And, you know, I, I think we've had some successes in that so far. We've taken a lot of growers down a couple of inches in water usage. And part of that, again, is because of the climate differences that we've had in the last few years. But if we can't get it into the soil, we can't hold on to it. And, you know, what what is good enough when it comes to water infiltration? I'm sure that you've got a completely different about what an adequate water infiltration is back on the home farm than the grower in Greeley County, Nebraska has for what water infiltration rates need to be. Right. So when you when you have that tillage event, I mean, the thing that you're really concerned about when it comes to water infiltration is you're filling in old pores. You're, you're creating smaller soil particles. You're breaking up aggregates and you're filling those soil pores generally with silt. Um, but somehow you're breaking aggregates and filling soil pores. And that's really your issue on water infiltration for the most part. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I think you could also stretch that out just a little bit and say that you are, you're destroying the biggest pores, mm -hmm. not, not necessarily filling them in, but changing the structure of the way that things move through the soil in those largest pore systems. In either, in either instance, the effect or the result is still the same. It comes down to, I can't move things through my pore space as fast as I could before that. Another conversation you'll have a lot of times with a guy who's on kind of flat ground is he'll say, you know, I, I'm not seeing the gullies. Yeah, you can talk a little bit about water infiltration, but I need to also break up shallow compaction to get water in. Gully erosion is not our largest source of soil loss. Really, our sheet loss, which you can't see at all. I mean, that's, that's literally um, a hundredth of an inch or a tenth of an inch, a very small amount of soil leaving the soil surface and floating away on, on water that's running off the field. It doesn't cut a gully or real erosion, which is, you know, maybe it's an inch deep. It's stuff you cannot see from the pickup as you're going down the road. I mean, the gullies, yeah, you can see those, or you can feel them with the sprayer as you go across and it bounces you off the windshield. But there's a significant amount of soil loss that happens before you start really seeing it and noticing it with something that you've got to fill back in with tillage or, or soil movement. That's something for growers to think about is as we lose multiple tons per acre of soil, which you don't necessarily even see, there's a lot more going down the creek than what they're probably aware of. Well, and first and foremost, I mean, you don't have to look any farther than the snowdrifts. Yeah. I mean, we, even in this day and age where no-till is the predominant player across the, the fields in Nebraska, we still have snurt. We still have that snow dirt mix yep. sitting on the edge of the field yep. out there, and it hasn't gone away. And... If a really healthy soil ecosystem with good microbial activity, good earthworms, you know, kind of talking about something different here, but for the sake of that conversation, if we have a really good microbial system in place, complete soil system here, we're going to build an inch of soil every 
10 to 25 years. Yes. For our for our environment and the the heat that we get and and the sunlight yep. that we get and all of those pieces. So, you know, that's less than a tenth of an inch of soil a year lost just to offset ourselves back to even. It doesn't take a whole no. lot of film blowing off of the top of that soil, washing off the top of that soil, whatever it is, to equate to that difference. It's nearly impossible to keep up with if you've got any erosion whatsoever. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you have that conversation with a guy about tillage, or maybe it's already a no-till guy. You've got him convinced, or, you, you know, you just can't convince him. What is the next step? So to me, again, that's the first step is I try to improve soil health would be to either limit my tillage or go completely to no-till. What's step two? So step two, we're going to enter into this whole conversation now about cover crops. Yep. And maybe I'm going to actually back up a little bit. Step two is talking about crop rotation. Sure. Absolutely. Good point. Let, let's, let's get to that before we dive into the cover crop side of things. As much as we want to fool ourselves into believing it, corn and soybeans is not an adequate cover crop rotation to maintain a healthy soil for 200 to 500 years out here. Sure. There's just not enough biodiversity in that system. And we've kind of painted ourselves into a corner with this over the last 50 or 80 years because we let our oat markets erode. We let our sorghum markets erode. We let our wheat markets erode. We just don't have markets across Nebraska, by and large, for a lot of those what today is deemed specialty crops, but what our grandfathers relied on and our for for the cash crops on a year in and year out basis and even with just adding something like oats to the rotation as that third crop something as a third crop you had a tremendous difference in the biodiversity of what was living in the soil by having that piece added to the system so the the lack of that biodiversity today is really one of the things that we need to start thinking about how we get over so that then leads into the cover crop scenario because as we look at the economics of what rental rates are for our land and what it costs for our inputs and things like that to have a whole season dedicated to a winter wheat crop or a whole season dedicated to grain sorghum or oats or rye or whatever you want to dictate in as that third crop for us with our, our transportation fees and what it costs to get to market there's a tremendous gap in there for adding that third cash crop. So that's where covers jump into this because they let us add living roots to the soil for longer throughout the season, but they also serve to break up that rotation and that pattern that the ground's gotten into and introduce different types of roots with different exudates and, and different timings and things like that that help the soil have new building blocks going into it to work with. Let me ask you this. Grower comes, you, you come to me with a grower already doing no-till, ready to take the next step. And he says, I own this ground. I'm in a comfortable place financially. Would you rather I diversified to a third crop and maybe he's got cattle? So he's got the opportunity to feed some of that crop off. So his impact, you know, his negative impact of a, a grain crop that frankly, just doesn't have great margin like oats or sorghum, isn't there. But he could do alfalfa, he could do oats um, and feed it, feed it as oatlage, or he could do something else. 
or he says, I could do cover crop. Which would you prefer? Would you prefer an off-season cover crop or a longer diversity? And I'll, I'll nail it down just a little bit more for you. I'm in York, Nebraska. So I think you've got to kind of look at what normal is for any given environment versus some of this bigger narrative that goes with it. So York, Nebraska, we're typically going to try to have something growing in that soil by the end of April. Mm -hmm. I mean, we want to have a live plant that's got a live root in that soil by the end of April. And typically speaking, we don't have a lot of opportunity to get into that field with much of anything else until the middle of October yep. for the growing season we have. So our opportunity to see how incorporating a cover and living roots and things like that into that has some, some real logistical challenges to establish that and get the most bang for the buck out of it. So, you got a month in the fall and a month in the spring. So really, it'd probably be better ecologically if the guy could add a crop for yep. diversity. Yep. I would agree with that. All right, let's take a quick break there, Keith, because we're going to dig into cover crop with a lot more depth, but it's time for a funny farm story. So several years ago, when I was first an intern at CVA back in the 90s, I got sent up to somewhere north of Spencer to go scout a field that was one of those typical you-can't-get-there-from-here farms. The instructions involve turning left at the round barn and going around the oak tree that's no longer there and that whole set of instructions to get back to this field. Open seven gates, cross two cattle guards, and look for the barn that burnt down in 83. That whole side of things. Don't and if they? the electric fence is still on, you'll figure it out. Right. So I left the pickup behind several miles before because this was not a pickup accessible field. You were traveling across the hilltops and things like that and narrow canyons. I have no idea how they ever got a sprayer back there as narrow as that one draw was, but we're working our way back here and there is an alfalfa field on the left-hand side of me and it's in full bloom. It should have been cut two weeks before that. Full bloom and there is a pair of tracks through the middle of the alfalfa field that of course the four-wheeler doesn't match. So I'm going along on this alfalfa and I'm 19 years old. Of course, I'm traveling exactly the speed that I should be traveling <laughs> as I'm going through this. And tool along on my little 300 Kawasaki Bayou. And out of nowhere, Tom the turkey decides that he needs to jump out from between these tracks instead of getting hit and fly directly towards me. But the problem was is he jumped out about three foot ahead of me and didn't have the room to move directly towards me. So as he comes up, his foot catches on the rack and he tumbles <laughs> end over end. And I let loose with you know things that would make my mother very unhappy with the, the language that I was using at this time as I just about had turkey excrement <laughs> applied to the entire left-hand side of my body and so on and so forth. And I, of course, I stopped and decided that I had to go back and see if my heart was laying in the trail <laughs> or what. But I never took for granted driving through a standing crop again after that for what might jump out of that from anything from a pheasant to a mountain lion. You never knew what was coming out of that four foot tall stuff that you were driving through. So even if that old bayou couldn't do more than 40 mile an hour, it's still faster than a turkey can fly. It's still faster than a turkey can fly. <laughs> All right, last Nesman. 
So Keith, you know, we opened up that door on cover crops. We talked a little bit about the diversification if a guy can go to another crop. And cover crops are really getting popular, and, and we get a lot of questions about cover crops and bringing them into their rotation at CVA. I'll just throw a few things out there. Um, I think when you're thinking about a cover crop, it's got to work in your crop rotation. And I honestly believe that the cover should be primarily legume in front of corn and primarily grass in front of soybeans. And that's generally the way I, I push growers to go. I do not like to see a cereal rye cover crop in front of corn. In an ideal world, I think that is absolutely the best case scenario is to work our, our legumes and our our grasses differently for the crop rotation that we've got out there but you know unfortunately we don't live in that ideal world out here for what we have to deal with on a day in and day out basis so let's just start with that whole thing of, of the conversation about making it work into our crop rotation if we live south of the the kansas border or south of belleville somewhere right in that area down in there our growing season expands enough that we've got the opportunity to put in most anything that we want for a yeah. cover crop, especially if it's got some winter hardiness to it, if it's going to survive the winter. We've got enough growing season, enough growing degree days left after after we take out our corn or soybeans, pretty much anything but grain sorghum down there, to get that thing up and established and have winter hardiness so that it grows as soon as we start having soil temperatures that will support that the following spring. If you go up, I'm going to say Watertown north, somewhere in that general geography to our north, Yeah. the differences in what they use for corn hybrids, the northern genetics kick in a little bit more as you get into that, the maturity lengths of the crops drop down into the 90s. Those corn hybrids especially are structured so they don't shade the row nearly as much as what we have and especially their populations change up there too that allow a little bit more light infiltration so those folks have an opportunity to interseed something maybe even as early as v6 into that corn crop interseed something and when they remove the crop off of it they've got to grow you know they've got a living plant there that's got the opportunity to take advantage of whatever's left for a growing season and in that case, if it winter kills, then maybe that's not such a big deal because they've already got some growth there and, and they got something out of it. But for those of us between the Kansas line and, and Watertown, South Dakota, it gets really tricky to make anything work into the crop rotation that we have. So I think you've really got to ask yourself as you look at what your goals are for what you want to do with the covers, if you can make it work into your cropping rotation or if you seriously need to look at some tweaks to your crop rotation to make it work you know for the improvements that we see in the 105 day corn to what it used to be for for maintaining yield that we have out here and, and having some drier grain that opportunity to maybe drop from 110 113 day corn down to 105 day and have an extra 10 days at harvest time to get something established in the fall for a cover crop, that's a that's a bit of a different story than what we would make a, a traditional narrative out of things right now. And the idea that I've got to be the first guy into the country in the neighborhood to, to plant my corn in April on April 10th or 12th or 15th or whatever the day is for however far north we go, 
that whole idea that maybe it's okay to plant on May 10th right. and have that crop selection change a little bit, looking at the rotation, looking at our system is the first thing that's on the table as we, we look at adding covers. And two, two big things to add into that system are cattle. If you got cattle, because now you've got a use for the feed, the cover crop isn't just a ecological benefit or a soil loss benefit. It's actually a feed product that you can replace feed dollars with. It also allows you to come back after corn silage with something and have a lot more time and, and be able to drill it, not just fly it on, be able to drill it in September. That makes a big difference right there. The other thing is going to be seed corn. If you've got seed corn as part of your system, there's a great opportunity for cover crop there, both on a flown on because you've just got less shading in between the rows. You got those male rows that you've destroyed and the fact that a lot of times you're going to get that off earlier. So whether you fly it on or whether you drill it on, I'd probably lean toward flying it on with a seed corn crop. Thoughts on that? I think that it's going to be rare to ever expect the same establishment of your cover crop Anytime it's not planted into the soil. Oh, amen. So that's that's first and foremost. Whenever we talk about the opportunities to fly it on, it doesn't mean that it's bad. doesn't mean that it's not a good choice for, for your farm if that's what you and your agronomist work out. Because it, it is. It, it still has a lot of viability and a lot of benefit. But it's not going to produce the same stand. It's not going to produce the same cover quality of forage or anything like that for the flying on of it and pivot makes a difference as well because if you can water it up that's better than if you're on dry land and you don't get a rain in tell me what the fall is going to be and i'll tell you how much i agree with that statement <laughs> sure so um you know i think there's you also disagree i can't believe it yes we disagree <laughs> all the time the other thing that i think you what is our opportunity to be more aggressive before our soybeans are harvested with the establishment of cover crops? Because for most of our area, in a normal year, whatever normal is anymore, we're going to take the soybeans off before we get that corn crop off. And it seems like the last few years that's been late enough that, that frost and freeze was on top of us already at that point in time. But... What are our opportunities to go out there August 15th, August 25th and establish the planting of that covers, whether it's an aerial seed, you know, whether it's aerial seeding, whether it's spinning it on, whatever the, the specifics of the planting system and the tracks that are already out there and some of those things dictate to us. Maybe that's an opportunity that we've got some growth in our geography for that we haven't really tapped yet. Well, a lot of times... If you can get it on around senescence of those soybean leaves, it seems like you're wasting your time because you just don't see a lot of growth out there. But there's enough out there. So, you know, we're recording this uh, here toward the middle of February. I was in a field this morning that was soybeans, and they had flown on at around senescence uh, uh, hairy vetch. And you... You don't see green there, but when you got looking, there were small veg plants. Yep. Well, when things do warm up here, we get, you know, and that can happen with the old Indian summer, you know, just a warm, some warm days in December. But as we start to warm up here in March, those plants are going to get going and they don't have to wait for you to get out there with a drill and drill it in. So 
yeah, the, I, there's advantages. This is where I think having an appropriate sized head on the combine for what you can realistically manage for residue coming out of the back of it and spread the back of it. Because in my opinion, you're going to get a better stand if you can get the residue coming out of the combine on top of that seed than you're going to get from running the center pivot or whatever over it to get it to germinate. Covers, sure. Cover is better than artificial moisture in that. Yeah. So you're holding moisture with your residue cover and that allows the seed to germinate even on, on the soil surface. Yep. Yeah. So Keith, we're kind of coming to the end of this episode, but I'd like you to stay over and, uh, you know, we've opened the door on cover crop, but there's a lot more to talk about. So let's go ahead and uh, finish it up here in another episode. So with Keith Byerly with the Soil Health Partnership, I'm Tim Mundorf for Central Valley Ag. Thank you for joining us on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CBA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cbacoop.com and you can see our agronomy focus blog series every other Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Mick Godekin and Tim Mundorf.